WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is Impact's one-hour discussion of news, events, and organizations within MSU's community. And now, this week's Exposure. everybody welcome back to exposure today we have the opportunity to talk to a couple people from tedx msu so it's gonna be a ted talk here at msu and i'm excited to talk to them about what this event is going to be all about so welcome hi thank you hello hi so do you guys want to introduce yourselves and talk about how your role is in all of this so my name is Kaumuthi Mahajan. I am a freshman here, and I am one of the off-campus marketing directors. I'm Johnny McGraw. I'm a sophomore here. I'm also on the marketing team. Hi, my name's Leah. I'm a senior here, and I'm going to be the. I am the senior marketing director. Awesome. So, it sounds like it's going to be like a normal TED talk, from what I've read. But also, for those of us that don't understand, <clears throat> do you mind explaining to them what exactly it's going to be happening? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people, I think, get their main basis of knowing what TED Talks are from YouTube. You know, you watch the 10-minute video and you're like, that's really cool. But what a lot of people don't know is TED Talks come from TED Conferences. So a lot the original talks or conferences are three days long. You know, there's a bunch of talks each day. But we're in your unique in that we're TEDx MSU. So we have a special license where we just work with the, we highlight the MSU community. So we're actually featuring, is it nine speakers? Nine speakers. From different backgrounds. Um, so you won't be just, you'll be seeing original talks and there'll be nine of them that day. Yeah. So can you give an example of some of the speakers that are coming? Yeah. So let me see. One of the ones I'm looking forward to most, for instance, Mike Pajkos. So he's a graduate researcher. And he's currently pursuing his PhD in astrophysics and high performance computing. Um, his talk is going to be kind of about his whole area of interest. Um, I'm really putting really complex ideas into more simple jargon for everyone else to understand. So he's talking about the collapse of supernova and how they play a role in speeding up the chemical evolution of the universe and how we're all made up of these um, like stars that have already uh, combusted far, far away and just putting it into really simple terms for all of us to understand. Awesome. And so is it going to be different types of speakers from different departments as well? Yeah, so if that's not what you're into, we also have two women talking about survivor voices and the power of a girl tribe. And then we have another young man who's talking about sustainable clothing in the fashion industry and how we can use modular clothing to help keep the environment like intact. So there are nine speakers, as we mentioned earlier, that are talking about their areas of expertise from astrophysics astro, like, to um, like survivor voices. So definitely a huge variety of speakers. Yeah, I think it's really important to highlight that as students and as community members of the East Lansing community, you're not really exposed to people that maybe are outside of your thought process or maybe outside of your college if you're still a student. So we're kind of highlighting everything from um, trans, the topic of being a trans gender in the hospital to someone that's doing field studies of fish to someone that's talking about a life experience to somebody that's also talking about um, 
the change how what we're going to do when we change over to a more autonomous environment out in the streets you know um this event is really going to give people the opportunity to see the innovative ideas that are happening right here in our own community that's awesome because that way you know people can understand what's happening here at msu because a lot of us students even don't even know what's going on because there's so many different groups and so many different things. Yeah. So a little bit, you guys touched on what you're most looking forward to, but what about the rest of you? What are the speakers are you looking forward to? Uh, we have one speaker that's coming into a transgender woman. The topics is right now, Joe is talking about how she's currently developing um, a program for the MSU College of Education. She was in the MSU College of Education. Now she's working with the College of Osteopathic Medicine. Joe's a really interesting case because before they had she had she had transitioned she was a white male and since in the past few years has transitioned to a transgender woman and she's going to really talk about the differences in care that she, she received and i think that's mm-hmm. a really interesting story that a lot of people haven't thought about or even considered yet yeah because yeah. it's a newer or like more popular mm-hmm. topic nowadays mm-hmm. and to see someone that's experienced it as well as just understanding how there's different types of care and how medical Innovation is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Really talking about, you know, this is the forefront, and it's not a transition isn't a new concept, but the idea of introducing it into healthcare education is something that's a little bit newer. So she's kind of at mm-hmm. the forefront, especially. And it's really exciting because it's happening right here at our school. And she, prior was on the faculty of education, and now is consulting with the College of Osteopathic Medicine. So besides having a lot of people learn about what's happening here at MSU and in the community, are there different ways that people can get involved in helping with these various new topics and processes? Yeah, so we um, like to be a part of like the TEDx team, if that's what you're asking. uh, We take in new members every fall. So just like a regular student run organization. And then, so beginning of the fall semester, we take in new members. And then sometime in November, if you have an idea that you think is worth sharing that on our platform, we release a speaker's application. So the, so we take members from all around the MSU-affiliated community to hopefully speak. And if that's something that you're interested in, we're always looking for new speakers in the fall. Yeah. But if people are interested in the various topics that these speakers are talking about, are they going to have like an open discussion afterwards? So we don't have an open discussion, but the really great thing that's unique to this conference is unlike somewhere where you go and the speaker flew in from, you know, who knows where. These people are right here in our community. So the ability to contact them, you can just log right online. And we can also, we always have the ability to connect you with them. If you really, I really want to continue that conversation with so-and-so. We can always make sure that that happens. Yeah. And are there any MSU students that are a part of the actual speaking? Are there groups that are speaking at the conference? This year, I believe we have two undergraduate students. And then we have quite a few uh, graduate students as well. Wow, are they going to be talking about their research, more research-based stuff? Or? So we have one student that's talking about sustainability in clothing. So a, lo- a large amount of it, too, is that the clothing industry is the second largest polluter on planet. There's a lot of waste that goes into it. So he's bringing some really innovative ideas on how we can kind of reduce that waste, but still maintaining fashion, maintaining style, which is, I think, hard because style is always changing, and that's something that's going to be really mm-hmm. interesting to see like, what his plans are, what his research has done. Um, and then we have another beautiful story of the power of a girl tribe of someone from Africa, Abita, who's talking about how she is from Cam- 
Cameroon. Cameroonian, and, yeah. And she's talking about her experiences there because, you know, sexual assault is such a hot topic here in the U.S. right now. There's so many issues and so many things that they're investing into it. But she's also bringing up that it's also happening other places in the world that you don't see because of it's just a different culture. And it's a really beautiful story about how she found comfort in, she calls it the process of a girl tribe. And I also think that with, you know, the sister survivors, it's a similar idea that you can find a lot of comfort um, by opening up to others that have been in similar situations as you. Absolutely. So what has been your favorite part of being a part of the marketing team for TEDxMSU? Wow. Well, for me, it was probably just the ability to kind of get hands on with some of the people in the interviewing process. So just actually being able to decide who we thought were some of the most important stories that needed to be heard was really cool to do. Um, I know I think Kamudi also uh, took part in that process and probably interviewed more people than I did. But it was just super cool being able to see these people who you know are going to be on stage and you know, just talk with them one-on-one -on -one and kind of figure out what they want to present on and all that. So it was really cool. Yeah, so like Johnny mentioned, we interviewed, I think, over like 120 people for being a speaker. And like, as like Leah mentioned earlier, the we in, are usually in our own bubble of like our college, our major as students. And seeing all these stories of people that are doing such incredible things and in our own backyard is truly like amazing. And to be able to be a part of the team that helps voice their like ideas and their stories and what they've gone through is such an experience it's like bigger than yourself yeah I totally agree they there's a lot of power in talking with somebody that you know is just fully open about discussing their passion you know we have artists we have students we have scientists we have researchers and to just sit down and have someone really um, get vulnerable and tell you about why they have devoted their life to something is a really is really, I think, a unique experience that only a few of us get here at Michigan State. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people should come to the TED conference because it's going to be, this gives you then the ability as well. Absolutely. It will definitely be a fun event. So to remind everyone that is listening here, what exactly, what times are the events? And is there a schedule of when each speaker is going on? Just more informational details. Yeah, so the actual TEDx MSU event is next Wednesday, the 27th, and starts at 6 p.m., goes till around 9 p.m., um, doors open at 5, so that's when the conference kind of, you know, the doors open, kicks off, everyone grabs their goodie bags and all that. I went last year, actually, and that's what made me really want to join the team, so it's just a super cool thing I'd highly, highly encourage. Um, still have tickets for sale online all up until, you know, morning of the conference. You can get them anytime. So tickets are available. Tickets are still available at the Wharton Center. The event starts at six and runs until nine. Um, it is one cohesive show, you could say as well. Mm -hmm. And then there'll also be interactive labs um, from different nonprofits and student organizations. Some some really great things to interact with. Um, and we hope to see everyone there. Absolutely. And you mentioned a goodie bag. That sounds exciting. Oh, you know, yeah. MSU students love their free stuff. Yes. So, so we like yeah, put so together. We have, go ahead. We put together like a bag of like notepads pens to like take notes and then also some of the speakers have like interactive bits in their talks so there should be it should be like really interactive and like a really good time because like as Leah mentioned these labs also we have like virtual reality coming in and like mm -hmm. the student biome project oh yeah project. one of them is the biodome project yeah. that's a really cool one it's gonna be a virtual reality walkthrough of 
Oh, something wow. the club is hoping to get on campus sometime soon in the near future. Yeah, I actually got to interview them a couple of weeks ago. So oh, yeah. if people are interested in that, they can go check it out mm-hmm. here yeah. at the TEDx MSU conference. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for coming in. This is awesome to learn about what you guys are going to be doing and to help support your guys' event. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much for having us. We're thank looking you. forward to it. Thank you so much. Hello everyone, it is Stephanie, your host of Exposure, and today we have the opportunity to talk to Bert Goldstein, who is the director of INU, a production that is going on at the Wharton Center. So we're going to give him a call real quick and talk to him about what's going on with that. Well, thanks for calling me back, and uh, fire away. What can I do for you? All right. So you are the director of INU that's going to be at the Wharton Center. So I was wondering if you want to share with everyone who's listening kind of what it is about and kind of what the storyline means to you. Yeah, it's, um, it's about two teenagers, Caroline and Anthony. Caroline is ill. She hasn't been to school in a long time. She's been uh, living out of her bedroom in her mom's house, um, and she's quite sick. Um, and one night, out of the blue, this guy from school, who's also 17, shows up. His name is Anthony, and he has a project for American Lit that they have to do on Walt Whitman, and she has been assigned to help him on it. Um, she wants no part of that, and he has to work very hard for the first third of the play to convince her to take this project on, which eventually he does. Um, And then through the course of the play, as they get to know each other and they let their guard down, uh, using the poem uh, and parts of the poem, they rediscover things about themselves, they rediscover things about life uh, in a very um, meaningful way. Um, And uh, this leads to a very unexpected and shocking conclusion at the end of the play uh, that I'm not going to reveal because you have to see it. <laughs> exactly. But, it does but, sound like a very much like a two high schoolers discovering themselves in an unexpected way through literature, which will be fun to see. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's basically um, what it's about. They each have their own issues, um, and that's revealed during the play. Um, and it's, uh, it's about, you know, 85 minutes, uh, of them duking this out one night, uh, in the middle of a winter, um, uh, and again, Walt Whitman becomes sort of the catalyst for their self-discovery. Yeah, so what drew you to become the director of this play? Well, a colleague of mine directed it in Texas a couple of years ago, and he knew I was looking for small cast plays, and he said, have you read INU? I said, no, I've not. I read it, and I, I loved it right away, and decided I wanted to do it. I, um... But I love Lauren Gunderson, who's the playwright, and she is the number one produced playwright in the country right now. Um, And there's only one playwright that had more professional productions last year other than Lauren Gunderson, and that was William Shakespeare. Oh, wow. Um, So she's very popular, very prolific. She writes great characters, great dialogue, and um, that's what drew me to the play. And I also loved the way she she weaves uh, Whitman in and out of the play. I, I'm sure at some point in my life I had read Whitman, but when I went to work on this, I studied it, and, you know, it's great stuff. And the way it's used in the play is just uh, really terrific. Yeah, so with every production, there's definitely probably some struggles that happen. So can you give an example of things that have gone wrong, but you've quickly been able to change around? 
nothing's gone wrong. Every play, I think, as you said, has its challenges and its complexities that you have to deal with. And I think the, working with the actors on this was being sure that they were honest, that they come off as teenagers, because they're not teenagers, they're adult professional actors. Right. Um, so I, I had to make sure that they were very honest, that they were communicating with each other, and that it was real. Um, and that was probably the biggest challenge. Also, getting them to explore the emotional range of each character. Uh, both characters have a lot of emotion going on at various times during the show, and so getting them to explore that um, was also challenging, but not in a negative way. This process for me was a very natural rehearsal process. It happened over a period of time. We rehearsed for three weeks, and so I, um, I had no worries about the actors being able to achieve that, um, but it was just a lot of work to get there. We, we spent three or four days just sitting at a table reading the text, and mining through the text for clues to when things change, to when emotions change, to how the characters went from one thing to another, how to mine the humor in the play. And so that was that takes a long time. But nothing really went wrong. Um, you know, it, I have two very good actors um, uh, in Greg Hunter and Tess Galbiati. Yeah, and one uh, of them's an alumni of MSU, yeah, right? Greg got his MFA in acting here at MSU, and I uh, I knew him when he was here as a student. I liked him very much and cast him. And then Tess, I found her uh, at auditions in Chicago, and they work really well together. They're just, I think they're really well matched. That's awesome. And it's always amazing to have MSU alumni come back. Yeah. In any regard, and especially that they'll be performing at the Warren. That's got to be a dream come true for him. Yeah, he's excited, and you know, it's it's uh, he's also getting paid. Not <laughs> <laughs> that too. He appreciate. Oh, they're both getting paid. So, wow. So, what advice would you give other students who want to be or are interested in auditioning or like working for being participating with the plays at the Wharton? Yeah, I've used I don't know maybe over the years four or five uh, MSU students, but they need to be graduated from their programs. I don't tend to work with MSU students that are still studying because. You know, they're doing MSU productions, they're in class, so it makes rehearsing very difficult. So uh, I prefer that they be graduated, but very often if I'm casting a show and I need young actors, I will audition MSU students, and I think I said, like I said, I've cast several of them over the years. Mm-hmm. Is Do you have any other students, like Michigan State students, helping with the production in any way? Or? No, the stage manager is a professional stage manager, um, and uh, so I really don't. Uh-huh. Our interns... Uh, who are interning in the department have helped with the study guide for the show and other aspects of the show. And I know some of our marketing interns who are students have also worked on this production in, in terms of marketing it to the community. Absolutely. So if people wanted to get in your line of work, what are some things that you would give advice to them to how to prepare to become a director or work in this sort of production? Well, you know, uh, it starts really in, in probably college or maybe even earlier and, mm-hmm. uh, Students, you know, they go to a place like MSU where they major in theater. And usually during the course of that major, um, they will specialize in what area they want to do if they want to act, which is where the bulk of the students usually are, stage manage or be in design. MSU um, doesn't have a directing program. Um, Some students are given opportunities to direct small productions, but 
they don't per se have a directing program, but there are colleges that do where students would go specifically to study directing, and uh, they can do that. The other thing is a lot of students just graduate from their programs. They go out, they start their own theaters, and they start directing. I mean, you know, you're you're working on a nickel-and-dime budget, but, you know, you go out there and you just start putting shows together and getting experience, and uh, that's one route. The other route is people particularly interested in directing will try to assist professional directors. They'll become assistant directors, and they'll apply mm-hmm. to do that maybe in a regional theater somewhere, and they may do that for a couple of years until finally someone gives them the opportunity to direct. Well, going back to theater in general, what do you think is one thing about theater that keeps people coming back, especially like in our age today? There's a lot yeah. of streaming and digital content sure. and home entertainment. From my opinion, it's clearly the live experience, mm-hmm. it's the communal experience of sitting with a group of pretty much strangers and sharing the experience of seeing that play. Um, I think that's clearly it. You can't digitize theater. I mean, you can, but, you know, we want to see it unfold in front of our eyes, and we call it sharing time and space with the audience. I think that's Mm -hmm. the the one thing that makes it exciting. I also think there's a lot of great stories out there, uh, whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's, you know, contemporary writers like Lauren Gunderson, um, and a lot of great spins on the world around us. Uh, This particular play is two teenagers that are you know, have a lot of fear and anxiety about certain things that are going on in their lives. And, you know, that's a very real and true thing. So um, I think those are some of the reasons why people continue to come. Yeah, for sure. So going back to I and you, what has been your favorite part of directing this play? Working with these two actors, um, Greg and Tess have been just wonderful to work with. We've had fun in the rehearsal hall. I've laughed a lot. They've laughed a lot. Uh, It's been fun to watch them discover the process, um, discover the play, and just grow in these characters. Um, And I've enjoyed working on Lauren Gunderson's play. I mean, it's it's been a fun play to work on. I've never gotten tired of watching it or reading it or seeing it. Um, But I think if I've done one thing really well with this production, I cast it really well. And I'm very proud of the work that they're doing. For the audience, what type of themes will they be saying that definitely directly, like, reflect on life in general, or like what themes do you think in the play relate to your life? They relate to my life personally? Yeah. Well, I think um, we all have challenges, and we all at some point look at life from the bottom of the well, uh, that just things aren't looking good. And so what we discover in the play through Walt Whitman, but also through these two people working it out is there is always that ray of hope that there's always a reason to keep pushing on. Uh, Caroline needs a, you know, she has a, she needs a liver transplant and her time is running out until she gets one and she's feeling that. And yet he's able to give her some sense of strength at the weakest moment in her life. And I think we've all been through that. Um, and I think that's one of the most powerful things I think the play is saying Um, and how much we really need each other as human beings. We can't solve these problems through texting and emailing and Twitter and all those things. We have to solve them just by being in the room with somebody and talking about how this affects each other and what we can do to throw an anchor to each other.
Yeah, I definitely think that's important. And having it be a play really connects the audience to what's going on. So I think yeah. it'll be really cool to see. Awesome. So if people are interested, you should go check out the Warren's website. They will have ticket information and those dates listed better there. Absolutely. I just want to thank you so much for taking some time to talk about INU. Well, thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate it and uh, have a great day. everyone and welcome to impact 89 sci-files i'm chelsea your co-host and i'm daniel puentes you're the co-host and we're here to discuss the wonderful research going on at michigan state university with us today we have john tran welcome john hi everyone thanks for uh coming over here to talk about your research with us uh, would you like to introduce yourself please yeah so thanks for having me my name is john tran i am a phd student in the department of plant biology i'm in my fifth year and i study biofuel research so you're in your fifth year, you're towards the end of finishing your PhD right now. What exactly does your research, in, how does your research involve biofuels? Yeah, so in biofuel research, we're really interested in understanding better ways to break down plant material. So plant material is the source of fuel that we um, get our, all of our fuel from in, in biofuels. And so one of the challenges to that is that plant tissue is actually very strong and it's very rigid. And so over the course of time, people have done different studies um, in understanding how the cell wall is built. And by understanding it, scientists have genetically um, altered um, plant cell walls so that the plant can still grow relatively normal. Yet while it's when it's time to process the plant tissue for, for extracting fuel, um, it could be done a lot cheaper and a lot cleaner. And so um, that's part of the research that I'm doing right now. So there's all this research that's looking at solar energy and hydrodynamic energy. Why are scientists in particular looking at biofuels in this case? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think um, there's always going to be plant material and there's always going to be excess of plant material and in the past, when people have used biofuel, um, it came from, it derived from plants that were used for food. And since then, since then, we really stepped away from uh, that source uh, for biofuels because um, we really want to keep um, plant food for, for food purposes. Now, in existence, there are a ton of other plant material that have relatively no other particular purpose. And so if we can somehow use that for fuel, it's a way of repurposing it because it's, it's going to be there. And I think ultimately, like you were saying, Daniel, there's solar energy, there's wind energy. I think it's going to take a combination of all of those different kinds of um, quote-unquote alternative energies to really um, move us forward. So you were saying that you guys don't want to use the plants that produce food in order to get the energy. What about the scraps from them? Like I know that corn, you can peel it and that you don't use it anymore. Do people use the scraps from that? And... Why is your method more efficient now? Yeah, that's that's pretty precise. So there are parts of food crops that um, we don't eat. Um, the example you gave was corn husk, and that is actually one of the starting materials that um, people have been investigating as um, a source of biofuel. 
And why is your method the better method now? Yeah, so, you know, regardless of the research that has been done so far, um, we still like to um, further our current technologies that we use to break down plant biomass because it's still relatively an expensive process. And so if we can further alter plant structure um, for biofuels, we think that um, it's going to lead to more um, general use, not just because um, right now a lot of biofuels are used for very specific purposes. And um, we think that by continuing this, continuing this line of research, it's going to be used more um, gen generally amongst, um, you know, amongst people like us. So what plants are you looking at right now anyways? Yeah, so there's a, an assortment of plants. Um, one that I'm particularly interested in is um, a plant called poplar, and poplar is a tree. So a lot of the biofuel research is done in a poplar system, and one of the reasons for that is that, as you probably know, um, trees can accumulate a lot of biomass, which is very um, advantageous to um, the biofuel industry. And at the same time, trees are very hard to break down. So that also gives us that, um, that challenge that I was referring to before. But one of the nice things about poplar is that it can grow um, relatively faster than the average tree that you, know, um, you may see while, while you're walking outside. And so the combination of the tree growing very fast and its ability to accumulate biomass and previous genetic studies that have been done in poplar, we think that it's a, a good system. I've heard of like certain fossil fuels and whatnot where people are saying that it's doing stuff to our atmosphere and all of that. And it's a big thing about having cleaner energy and whatnot. Is your way of doing this a cleaner source of energy? Yeah. Um, one of the advantages of biofuel is that it comes from plants that are on the ground. And so as plants undergo their natural processes, such as uh, photosynthesis, um, they're doing that um, by fixing carbon. And so plants have the ability to take carbon um, out of the air and then transform it into the carbon that it used for, for its own growth and development. That is uh, opposed to uh, fossil fuels where we are taking um, carbon from um, beneath uh, the surface and then we're reintroducing that carbon into the air. And so that's how we get an accumulation of um, different greenhouse gases, uh, not just only carbon. We believe, and, and there's going to be more studies that have to go into this to really do the, the math and the economics of it, but um, because plants capture carbon and then we burn that carbon, um, we consider that to be a neutral carbon. So that's a new term I haven't heard of before. Neutral carbon, is that where the emission of carbon is zeroed out from the use of it in the first place? It, uh, effectively, yes. So it's going to be the same carbon that was already in the air being reintroduced uh, back into the air once the plant is burned. So that's considered neutral. The caveat to that is there is going to be carbon being used to, of course, collect that plant material to harvest it, to process it. So that's a separate um, process. John, you're heading towards the end of your doctorate now. That must mean that you're relatively close to an idea of what your result will be for your thesis. How does your result impact today's everyday world and 
why is it important? In my thesis, I'm really interested in identifying a particular gene that's going to help us understand how the plant cell wall is built. One of the reasons why I'm really interested in that is because the cell wall is what gives plants its structure and also the rigidity um, to grow upwards, right? So it's pretty much the plant skeleton. And in that same vein, that cell wall makes it very hard for biofuels um, to be made because um, the plant biomass is relatively strong. One of the reasons that the plant cell wall is strong is due to, um, to a very, um, it's due to a molecule. And this molecule, um, one of the things we don't understand about it is really how uh, the building blocks are assembled um, to make it. And so in my research, I have been doing a lot of work in identifying what this gene could be. Should a gene be responsible for this process in the first place? And at the moment, it looks like we're able to identify um, one gene that um, we're currently working on um, understanding. So we're still very much in the process of of doing this investigation. But um, based on the data that we've seen so far, it looks like it is responsible for um, the plant structural system. John, what I'm gathering from what you're saying is I'm picturing a wall where you have cement bricks and you have cement connecting it together, kind of like in third grade or whatever, where they were making us create a plant wall. And I remember it was a, a very stru a rigid structure. The animal cells looked like a circle. The plant wall was like a square. So in my mind, I'm picturing bricks. What you're telling me is that this gene can control basically the amount of cement in it and what's really making it strong like that from what I'm gathering so that if you basically don't have the cement in it, you can hit that wall and it'll break down and you can get the fuels a little bit better. Is that kind of, I'm trying to make like an analogy here, but does that kind of sound right? Yeah, that's a great analogy, Chelsea. And I will say the, um, the only part that I will kind of reward is that I think this gene is controlling how fast the brick is laid down or how fast the cement is laid down. Because we think that if we can control this gene from laying down um, the cement, we can perhaps do so in a way that uh, makes it so it's slower. And if it's slower, then the cell wall can still develop but when the plant matures, there'll be less, um, less of it in there so that when it comes to breaking it down, um, not a lot of resources are going to be uh, required um, to do so. All right, so I think it'd be cheaper and easier after all of that. So, John, does a plant put on its genes in the morning or in the afternoon? You don't have to answer that, John. <laughs> I think what Danny's trying to say is, what are genes? Because some people that are listening might not even know what genes are. <laughs> yeah, so, so all living organisms have genes, and genes are involved in making the proteins um, in our cells. And so um, just as humans have genes that make proteins, plants have genes that make proteins as well. And in my research, there is a model organism 
which is a way of saying there is um, one particular plant that um, has, has been studied extensively throughout plant biology. And the name of the plant, which isn't too important, but if you're interested, it's called Arabidopsis thaliana. And one of the interesting things about Arabidopsis thaliana is that it's one of the most well-studied plants um, in the history of plant biology. Part of that is because we have characterized a lot of the genes involved in Arabidopsis. So whether it's genes that are involved in photosynthesis, genes that are involved in seed germination, people have identified a lot of those genes. That's really interesting. Thanks for explaining the plants and the genes and everything to us. I had a question, though. A lot of people listening don't even know what the process is of getting your PhD and whatnot, and you're about to finish. I was wondering, could you explain what it was like throughout this process and things that you had to go through and what you have to do now to finish and get your PhD? Yeah, that's a good question, Chelsea. One of the things that um, was unique to my experience, and perhaps probably not too unique, is that uh, I moved to Michigan State from California. So I went to school. I grew up in California. I did everything in California. And coming here, one of the big adjustments was um, the weather. right? So things as simple as um, the weather can provide uh, hurdles uh, on top of the the classes and the research. But um, aside from that, coming to Michigan State um, Plant Biology Research Program, um, it's it's been really great. And some of the other challenges include, um, include designing um, the research project. So um, my project, there wasn't um, students or other researchers who have started it before me. And so coming in as a grad student, um, just starting off and having to start a project, I think those two um, proved to be difficult and challenging. Um, nonetheless, I, I learned a great deal about starting something from scratch. Um, so that was probably the, the hardest thing. Um, the classes were challenging, but I think at the end of the day, the classes were actually um, like really fun. And so it wasn't um, it wasn't too overwhelming. Um, Are you not taking classes anymore? Like how how does how does it work for you to get your PhD, and how how has that timeline been? My first two years were dedicated to coursework, and um, after that, um, it was just solely uh, dedicated to working in the lab. And what about now? Like, what do you have that you need to do now in order to get your PhD? Yeah, so I have a couple of experiments that are ongoing, and um, those are going to be the focus of um, my time um, during the remaining um, course of my PhD program. And so I'm looking to finish um, by next spring, and um, leading up to that, um, there are a number of experiments, both um, that are involve um, genetics and some that involve uh, biochemistry. And so it'll be a combination of those two types of um, assays and experiments. So you mentioned your time, and it sounds like it's pretty limited. What do you like to do outside of the laboratory? What activities do you find enjoyable? And yeah. Yeah, one of the greatest advice that I was given before I started grad school by my undergraduate mentor was that... Um, Whatever it is that you like to do for fun, 
don't ever stop doing that in grad school because that's really what's going to help you um, stay focused, but also stay loose and, you know, stay healthy. And the thing for me um, growing up was I have always liked to play basketball. Part of it is because there's a physical part to it, but also there's a social aspect to it. And so um, I play a lot during undergrad and it was really good for me. And so ever since I started grad school, um, those were, that was something that I kept up with. And so there are intramural leagues here at Michigan State, um, both for undergraduates, students, graduate students, and staff. And so I've been involved in um, those, those kinds of activities. That's awesome. I'm not so great at basketball myself, though, but great for you. I was wondering, are you in any organizations or anything, like, or is it just the basketball intramurals? One of the organizations that um, I was involved in and that I started here um, as a grad student was the Asian Pacific American Graduate Alliance, so we refer to it as APAGA. And so APAGA has been a really cool uh, opportunity for me to meet and network with other graduate students and um, also students of color and also students who are Asian American. Part of that, why it's important to me is because um, coming here to the MSU campus, the Asian American student population is fairly low. And so one thing that I wanted to do was to come up with a space for the students who are here to come together and to develop both as academic scholars, professionals, and students. And so I was the president of a, a PAGA for about a year and a half, and I'm still relatively involved in, in it now. Of course, uh, I'm not so much involved in it because I am trying to finish my PhD program. The other one um, that I'm involved in is the American Study of Plant Biology um, Convire and Scholars Program. So this is a national program for um, relatively early career people who are doing research in plant biology, so people who um, fall into the category of undergraduates or graduate students. And um, this has been a program that's focused on written communication, um, verbal communication, um, and just about all the other aspects of professional development. And so that's one that I'm involved in um, at the moment. It's really cool that you start an organization over here. Uh, what was that like when you were in grad school? Yeah, luckily I had the experience of being involved in other student organizations in the past, never at a, never in the capacity as president. And so I looked to this as a really great opportunity for me um, to lead to lead a student organization, being at the, the forefront of it. And it was good because it really helped me build my my skills in facilitating. Um, and again, a lot of the things that I, I choose to pursue, um, I hope that it's going to help me for my career goal as a professor. So one of the things that was great about being in APAGA was that um, I had to be in front of the room. I organized our meetings. I organized um, our different events, whether it was getting together a panelist that included professors, staff, students, or figuring out a way to get uh, feedback from people. 
from people in the organization. So it helped me in a, in a number of ways. You mentioned your career goal just now, which was to become a professor. Can you talk a little bit more about that and other goals that you have for after you earn your doctorate degree? Yeah, in, in thinking about what I wanted to do as a career, um, I really like interacting with, with students. So I really like the process of learning. And though being professor involves a lot of teaching, um, the more I think about it, it it's more about um, it's more about learning, right? So teaching people how to to learn. And when I think about like um, growing up, who were the big people that uh, impacted my life? They've always been teachers, professors, or coaches. So it it always took place within um, a school a school setting. So on top of that, I. I enjoy research, and so I think it's a great culmination of both uh, my interest in teaching and learning, but also in research and experimentation. So, um, yeah, I like to work as a professor at a university in the future. That's wonderful. So you're saying that people inspired you, like your professors and your coaches and things like that. But what made you want to get into science? Like, did you know at any particular point, or were you wandering around and you found the plants? Mostly the latter. So I did a lot of wandering around when I first started college. And one of my first interests was in medicine. And that eventually transitioned into um, wanting, wanting to be a doctor, then wanting to be a nurse. And the way I got involved into research was I did a research honors project while I was in community college. And I worked with a professor there who... Um, who let us be involved in independent projects. And so what that eventually evolved into was um, an opportunity to present at a conference. And it was here at this conference that I presented um, to this judge who was a professor at UC Davis where I would um, later go on to finish my undergraduate degree. And he was a plant biologist. And so I had a really great interaction with him and in talking about my research. And so when I, eventually transferred community college to UC Davis, I reached out to um, this professor and asked to join his lab. And so it was a plant biology lab. So fast forward, I'm, I'm working in his lab and I get another, I get a different opportunity to go to this conference, to go to a ASBB conference. And so ASBB is um, the American Society of Plant Biologists. And so they have their annual meeting. And so it was at this conference that I got to see a number of speakers talk about research in plant biology. And one of the cool things that I no noticed was that um, when I was there, I realized that plant biology isn't just so much about um, doing research for food, but it had implications in so many different areas of um, our, our lives, right? So a lot of medicine comes from plants. Um, energy, as we were talking about earlier, comes from plants and, again, food. So I saw these really important pillars of really like human civilization um, relies on our understanding of plants. And so I really credit that conference for really drawing my interest. And I think it was then that I made the decision um, to pursue plant biology in graduate school. Thank you, John, for taking the time to meet with both Chelsea and I and as well as our listeners.
we have time for one last question, and that is, what advice would you give to any one of our listeners right now that is possibly debating a career in science or pursuing and studying science, and what would you recommend to them in order to help them make this reality? Well, thanks, Chelsea and Daniel, for having me. It's been really fun. One of the advice that I would give to our listeners is that, um, you know, we've made a, a lot of great discoveries um, here on Earth about uh, the space, galaxy, um, about our oceans. And even so, there still remains a great deal of, of things that we don't know. And I think that presents really great opportunities for people to um, get involved in research and science. And I, know, and I know it's hard because one of the things that um, people may find surprising is that um, a lot of people that are doing research now, they, they really struggle with it, like myself. And so early on in my schooling, um, science and math, all of those things were actually very challenging to me. One of the things that um, helped me keep my interest in it were, were the people. And so I think one thing that I always found very helpful was reaching out to uh, my teachers and professors and people that I worked with. So whether it was when I was in elementary or high school, I've always reached out to my science teachers. And I think in building those relationships, it really helps foster um, both my growth and my curiosity as a young person taking on this challenging work. And then as I got into college, it was about reaching out to my professors. And I think one of the great things about um, today is that there, there is an abundant op amount of opportunities for people that are in college to take on research opportunities. So, um, you know, I was sharing earlier that I reached out to a professor to work in their lab. And I would advise and recommend to a lot of people who are curious about a career in science to, to do the same thing. And because um, it really helps you determine whether or not uh, it's something that is fun for you and that is right for you. And those are both really great opportunities to, to, get, to get to know that um, then. And aside from that, there's also great opportunities to do research during the summer. And so, often these fall into the category of summer research opportunities program or REUs, which are research experience for undergraduates. So I'd also recommend for students in college to um, look into those opportunities as well. Thanks so much for that wonderful advice, John. We also really appreciated you discussing your research with us. It, I think it's wonderful that people out there can listen to all the wonderful things that people are doing here at MSU. Thank you, everyone, for joining Daniel and I at this episode of Sci-Files. Stay tuned next week for more. Bye.